This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello everyone, I'm here today with Brandon Munro. Brandon is the CEO of Bannerman Resources, an exploration and development uranium company which owns the Tango project in Namibia. I have been talking to Brandon for a while now and his insights are priceless. Just a full disclosure before we start our conversation. I own shares of Bannerman and some accounts I manage also own shares of Bannerman. Having said that, this should not be taken as an investment recommendation at all. Now, disclosure out of the way, let's go for it. Brandon, thank you for coming to this program. It's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, it's great to be here, Marcella. Thank you. First of all, uh, could you please tell us a little bit about Bannerman and how you ended up becoming the CEO of the company? Bannerman's been around since 2005 uh, when we started working on the Atango project in Namibia. Uh, we've been a uranium-focused company throughout the company's history. And in 2009, we completed a PFS on Itango. In 2012, we completed a DFS on Itango. And because of circumstances in the uranium sector and nuclear sector in two, from 2011, uh, we weren't able to proceed to financing that project. Uh, we wanted to keep moving the project forward, so we conducted a demonstration plant, which involved six phases of heap leaching and really de-risked the project and proved the processing route that we've undertaken there. And in the meantime, we've been undertaking optimization studies and we're currently in a phase of doing a DFS update to see where there are some wins in terms of technological changes and other changes since we originally published our DFS in 2012. Um, so in terms of how I became the CEO, well, I went to Namibia as general manager of Bannerman back in 2009. The first job that I had there was to uh, obtain the company's environmental clearance. So I was very deeply involved in the environmental impact assessments, environmental management plans, and obviously the politics associated with steering a environmental approval through. Um, pleasingly, we got that, and that's still in place with the project, so we're permitted. After the events of Fukushima in 2011, it was pretty clear to me that my role as a GM corporate development was going to be quite curtailed by world events. So at that point, I left Bannerman but stayed in Namibia, where I set up a copper company that listed on the ASX. Uh, we're an exploration company. We did a joint venture with the copper giant First Quantum Minerals and uh, ultimately sold that business in 2015. And by real chance and very fortunate chance, I was asked to consider coming back to Bannerman as CEO in March 2016 and started on 9th March. So I'm coming up to my third year anniversary with Bannerman and it's been a fantastic journey so far. Congratulations. When you say that the deposit is in Namibia, do people question you about the safety of this African jurisdiction? Do you see some problems from South Africa and Zimbabwe showing up in Namibia? So it's a good question, Marcello, because for people who have even been to Namibia only once, that question never surfaces again. But for people who perhaps aren't that experienced with Africa, it, they do ask that question, and quite rightly. Uh, Africa is a very diverse continent. There's over 50 countries in Africa, and 
we tend to hear the bad stories, not the good ones in Africa. So I think it's a very appropriate question to ask if someone hasn't been there. Now, equally, the answer is very straightforward. And you don't need it from me. You can go to one of the guidebooks like Lonely Planet Guide or TripAdvisor, and they describe Namibia as Africa for beginners or Africa light. And it really is like that. I lived there with my family for six years. I never even had a car broken into in all of that time. Um, never felt unsafe. Uh, Namibia has been a independent sovereign country for more than 25 years. It's politically stable. Uh, the security situation is much like you'd experience in much of Australia, for example. Uh, it has the stability of an infrastructure heritage that goes all the way back to uh, when the Germans were colonizers of Namibia. So there's a sense of law and order. There's a sense of organization. There's fantastic road infrastructure, ports, power. Namibia, fortunately, just doesn't suffer from a lot of the crisis situations that unfortunately affect many parts of Africa. So going there is an absolute breeze. And, and let me tell you, it's never difficult convincing investors and brokers to join me on a site visit to Namibia. They absolutely love it. Great. When I was in Perth early last year, you mentioned that uranium prices would be around $30 a pound by year end. Ended up the year close to that and today's almost $29 a pound up from around $23 when we spoke. So you were very close and did really well on your call. So what do you expect for uranium prices in 2019 and beyond? Interesting that you mentioned $30, Marcello. And yeah, it did seem a little bit brave back then because it was, as you noted, it was more than a third increase in the price. But I thought the dynamics were playing out quite clearly for us. And there's a dynamic at the moment that I see playing out very clearly. And that is a fairly rapid run, initially between $30 and $35. Uh, what's happened just recently in the sector Uh, and this is really for your audience and your listeners, because I know you understand this very well. But what's happened is the uranium price has stalled just below $30, and it's created a phenomenon that initially was really just amongst financial investors, which was the concept of a $30 psychological barrier in uranium. And you might recall us talking about it, but it originated from a fund who was um, capitalizing a specialist uranium investment vehicle. And the feedback they were getting from many of their investors was along the lines of, well, here's a little bit of money, but once we see uranium hit $30, we'll be there with a whole lot more. That started to develop a little bit of a life of its own in terms of the psychology of investors. And then when the uranium price leveled and started to build a new base at around $29, Uh, many observers of the sector who didn't quite understand what was happening in the spot market in December at that point in time, they attributed this stall or this leveling or this base to the $30 psychological barrier. So all of a sudden, what really is a artifact of psychology and investment psychology has started to develop its own truth. And interestingly, in London, when I was at the beginning of January, I was up in London talking to lots of nuclear types, including utilities and the world's biggest uranium producers and so on. And what startled me was the number of those types of players in the nuclear sector who were talking about the $30 psychological barrier. So I've done a bit of work on it since then. And interestingly, it might be called a barrier or technical barrier or a psychological barrier, but we're in a phase of the uranium market at the moment where there is a huge amount of influence being levied by financial investors into the sector. Uh, the 
Good example being Yellowcake. So for your audience, uh, Yellowcake uh, announced an IPO on the London Stock Exchange back in June last year, June 2018, and their investment proposition was to raise a couple of hundred million dollars, use that money to buy 8.1 million pounds of U308 from Kazatomprom, the world's largest uranium producer. Now that absorbed 25% of Kazatomprom's production for 2018 and went a long way to changing the nature of sentiment in the uranium sector. And since then, we've seen uh, Uranium Participation Corporation, who also invest in physical uranium, they've uh, raised further money and bought more uranium. We've seen Yellowcake buy more uranium, and we've seen another player, Uranium Trading Corporation, go through the process of listing on the New York Stock Exchange, which is soon to complete. At the same time, we've seen a number of specialist uranium investment funds like L2 Capital pop up and start deploying their funds both into physical uranium and also into uranium equities. Now, what that all means is there's a relatively large amount of money sitting on the sidelines waiting for its cue to come into the uranium sector at a time when we've got relatively small amounts of uranium being traded and a very, very small selection of quality uranium equities that that money can be invested into. And that's where the $30 psychological barrier becomes really interesting and really important because if that is the cue, and I believe it will be, if that is the cue for this money to start flowing into the sector, it's going to have to force its way into a home which is going to both put pressure on the uranium spot price and pressure on uranium equities. And the barrier therefore becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And under those conditions, I'm confident that we will see uranium initially run very quickly to $35 and then it'll start to concertina into to some of the other bigger influences that we've got in the sector. For example, the Section 232 uh, investigation that's going on in the US, um, producer buying from Cameco, and some of the other big dynamics that we're seeing in the sector at the moment. Wow, you mentioned a lot of interesting points now, Brandon. Uh, first of all, the psychological barrier at $30 in spot price. And in the last 30 years, term contracts were the norm and spot prices were almost irrelevant. But it has changed since Fukushima, right? Right. So traditionally, you're absolutely right. If you look back over the uranium market, say in the last 30 years, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, the uranium sector has always been very dominated by term contracts and long-term contracts, anywhere between three and 15 years of commitments. It was at a time when the big major resources companies were heavily involved in uranium, uh, Rio Tinto, BHP, Cameco, and the spot market was really just used for settling overproduction, buying back under delivery. It, it was really just a balancing mechanism when the real action was term contracting. Now, what we've seen in the last few years is we had the Fukushima events in 2011, and they created a key distortion, as you well know, in the uranium sector, which was the buffering effect of term contracts meant that with uranium demand coming off in a direct response to events at Fukushima, the production didn't stop because the producers were just delivering into the term contracts that they'd written several years before at much higher prices. So it's taken seven full years since Fukushima for that effect, that insulation or buffering or hedging aspect of these long-term contracts to finally wash out. And part of that washing out process has been almost no long-term contracts being written in the last few years. In relative terms, we've had a very small proportion of long-term contracts written. And that's created two things. One is it's 
pushed further volume into the spot market. So we did a record year last year, 88 million pounds went through the spot market. And for your listeners, that compares to a net uh, annual consumption of uranium of about 170 million pounds in rough terms. Uh, but what we also see is because the utilities are not term contracting at the moment, and there's been very little term contracting over the last few years, they're leaving themselves uncontracted or exposed over the period out to, for example, 2030. So an industry that's always relied on high degrees of certainty of supply and absolute risk mitigation in terms of both pricing and delivery now finds itself in an unprecedented territory where a significant proportion of the uranium and nuclear fuel that these big power stations are going to require uh, between 2030 and, uh, 2020 and 2030, all of a sudden they can't say where that uranium is going to come from. And that's created a fabulous market dynamic as we see this sector move from a bear market bottoming out as I think we've seen and now back onto an upward trend on its way towards a bull market. Brilliant. And do you see the potential for gains like the ones we saw in the 2004-2007 bull market? What was interesting about that bull market is there was a spectacular price, uh, $136 a pound it peaked at, but that in real terms, that still isn't the highest prices that uranium has been. In real terms, when we had the oil crisis back at the end of the 1970s and we saw the first large-scale deployment of nuclear power plants, the uranium price spent several years well above that $136 in real terms um, and peaked at somewhere closer to $180 in real terms. So it wasn't so much the price that was spectacular, it was a trajectory of growth. Uh, uranium went from $20 a pound to $136 a pound in a matter of just over 12 months. So it's, it's hard to call that sort of trajectory. Um, you need a special set of circumstances to see uranium, the a price of any commodity, increasing in such a rapid way. However, what we do know for an absolute fact is that current uranium prices are not sustainable. Uh, there's a simple economic logic throughout the sector, which is the cost of production for a substantial part of the uranium that is delivered to nuclear power plants today is above the current uranium price. So therefore, one of two things needs to happen. Either the price needs to go up, and I would say it needs to go up quite substantially, as in multiples from where we are now, or the nuclear power plants will ultimately run out of feedstock. And with all of the momentum that we've got behind climate change policy at the moment and the nuclear industry finally starting to win public opinion because of its ability to produce clean, carbon-free baseload energy, I just can't see the second scenario playing out. I can't see a situation where the world allows itself to run out of nuclear fuel. Those reactors are not only have to keep going, but there's so many being built in China and India and Russia and, and the Middle East and other parts of the world that this momentum is definitely going to continue. So the price needs to become an enabler for those new mines to come on and for existing production to continue. Therefore, it must go up. Okay. Do, do you have a target in mind or no? Ah, well, I, I think we've all got targets in mind. Um, what I can talk to is analysis that we've done. Um, based, we've done a lot of extensive modelling inside Bannerman, and that's a bit of an unusual thing for a junior mining company, particularly one who's not in production. And and I think there's just a little bit of a little bit of my pet interests coming through. The the economist is yelling to get out of my soul at the moment, so I tend to spend a lot of time analysing and uh, and modelling things and so on. Um, but based on the analysis that we've done, we think that for uh, the level of production that's going to be required to meet 
new demand and to replace falling supply as the mine productions decay and as all bodies run out and so far. When we put $80 a pound into our model in a few years' time, we still can't meet enough demand. So our belief is that we need a price of at least that level to bring on sufficient supply to feed the long-term interests of this sector. Excellent. And do you see investors becoming more interested in the uranium space this year compared to previous years? And if yes, why aren't stocks pri stock prices going up together with the uranium price? The answer to the first question is Absolutely. So I've run Google searches on uranium for quite some time. Just a year ago, it was quite rare to see some real analysis of uranium popping up. Um, and if we go back 18 months, it was really only a couple of times a month. And you'd remember this yourself, but it was only a couple of times a month when you'd see something fresh come up on a Google search. What we're seeing now is fresh, original, analytical work being produced on a daily basis. And in many instances, several times a day. Lots of broking firms doing it. Lots of smaller boutique funds who are looking for thematics that they can put out to their investors. We've got the different fund of funds who are putting analysis out. We've obviously got the big firms. And then there's enough interest from commentators such as yourself and myself and some of the other people we're talking to in the industry who are also putting out thought pieces. Now, that level of sentiment and interest and in information has contributed to much of the dynamics that I described in terms of this groundswell of investment that I think is getting behind uranium. And I think the sentiment, the role of sentiment and the role of psychology is at a really critical junction for where this sector needs to go in the very near term, in the next three to six months. Now, to answer your second part of that question, why isn't that affecting equities? It's probably more interesting for your listeners if I focus on ASX. This has been talked about quite a bit in North America. But on ASX, we've only got less than two handfuls of credible uranium companies that are listed. And a large proportion of those companies in the last 12 months have been negatively affected by non-uranium events. Bannerman's an example. We, uh, we had a very successful raising in June of 2018. Uh, that was raised at 4.6 cents. We traded up quite quickly to as high as 7.5 cents. And then we came under selling pressure as our larger shareholder uh, needed for other reasons to do with some of the investments in their fund. Uh, they needed to sell us and we came under significant selling pressure. And today we find ourselves at just over 4 cents. We weren't the only company in that situation. There's another two companies who are uranium companies in that basket that I mentioned who also had selling pressure from the same fund. Uh, there was rebalancing of the URA ETF, which affected another company. And then another company in that basket had social issues in its jurisdiction. Again, nothing to do with uranium price, but all of these factors have driven down the equities prices of the most important basket of uranium companies on the ASX. So the equities have really trailed the increase in uranium price, and they've certainly trailed the sentiment. And I would suggest that what we have at the moment is a yawning gap between where equities on the ASX are and where they ought to be for not only the given uranium price, but what I see is the immediate prospectivity and upside risk associated with the uranium price. Cool. And uh, well, you before you mentioned uh, Section 232, because it is a very important issue for investors. 
And I know it's a difficult call to make. Do you have any expectations? Actually, better than that, uh, what would be the best outcome in your opinion? So what I would say is I don't have any expectations. And I think, Marcello, you know that I don't mind making a call. I'm, I'm prepared to put the proverbials right on the chopping block when it comes to making calls. Um, but this is a very difficult area. And the reason it's so difficult is we've got an extra congressional process that's being taken that's taking place where the executive arm of government the trump administration ultimately gets to make a decision on what the outcome of the section 232 investigation is now the department of commerce who conducts this investigation they can come up with recommendation but as long as they trigger process by finding there are untrade unfair trade practices that threaten u.s national security as long as it goes through that gate the trump administration can do whatever they like or nothing. And we've seen that the Trump administration's quite prepared to make provocative trade moves. Uh, we've also seen that President Trump's very effectively deployed a strategy of being unpredictable when it comes to negotiations. And there's been a huge number of suggestions made in addition to the petitioner's request that there's a 25% quota in post. So I can't tell you what I think is more likely but I can throw a large range of scenarios that are possible. And that's everything from, for example, the, the requested quota system, which for your listeners is 25% of US consumption of uranium must come from production domestically made in the US. Now, that's what's been asked for. Um, there's been a lot of holes poked in that suggestion. There's been a lot of criticism of that. There's been a lot of um, alternatives put forward. Then you take that a little bit broader and you say, well, maybe it's a quota, but we're going to look after our allies. So that can also be Australian uranium. It can also be Canadian uranium. It can also be Namibian uranium. Then you might say, well, maybe 25% isn't the right number. Maybe it should be 15%. So there's another action. Uh, it's not impossible that they could, that the administration could go down the route of tariffs. And again, if they impose tariffs, do they let their allies off the hook? Do they exempt the Australian production and the uh, Canadian production and the Namibian production? But there's other more lateral solutions that would have quite a profound impact on the uranium sector. So, for example, what if the Trump administration thought the best way to tackle this is to take a longer term view on US influence over the nuclear power cycle? And instead of imposing a quota or a tariff based on domestic production, a quota or a tariff was made in favour of US controlled uranium. And what that would do is that would US uranium companies, however that ends up being defined, they would basically have superscript because they could use their script to go and acquire uranium projects around the world that as long as they were owned by that US company or controlled by that US company, they'd then have access to preferentially to the US market. Now, that's the sort of thing that I think President Trump would be well capable of delivering because that would extend the US's influence beyond just producing its own uranium, but to accessing and controlling and influencing uranium deposits beyond its own borders at a time when China is doing exactly that very competitively and very effectively. And the US has so far had absolutely no response to China's appetite for uranium projects around the world. So I think there's many different responses. Sure. But uh, listen, this uh, last one that you mentioned, it's quite interesting. And um, I don't think anyone has uh, ever mentioned that uh, before, because uh, we see the, the Chinese playing an important role in the 
sector. They they recently acquired a portion of Rossing from Rio Tinto. Uh, that the Russians also control over 50% of the enrichment facilities and the uranium production today. So if the US uh, decides to go out and acquire some uh, assets, that's going to be a big run in the uranium space, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it would undoubtedly bring on a consolidation round. And we saw from the last uranium boom in the 2005-2006-2007 that what initially started as a high trajectory of price increases very quickly moved into uh, a consolidation round where quality assets were bought by both other uranium companies such as Paladin but also by sovereigns such as China and Russia and others. Uh, so I think that that would certainly lead to a consolidation within the industry and what any consolidation in this industry does is it concentrates supply even further which would exacerbate any supply concerns that utilities and sovereign nations might have into the future. Sure. And uh, apart from that, let's say that Trump's decision on Section 232 uh, is something completely different. Uh, do you still see uh, M&As taking place in the sector once uranium prices get above $40, $45? Yes, I do. I do. And if fundamentally, no matter what happens with Section 232, it's going to have one important effect, and that is lifting uncertainty. So as you've seen, Marcello, the, the whole sector has been paralyzed by the uncertainty of Section 232 for the reasons that I mentioned. And it's been going on for more than a year already because the petitioners originally requested this investigation back in January 2018. So that paralysis of buying decisions, of M&A decisions, of investment decisions, once that paralysis lifts, in whatever form Section 232 takes, whether it's doing nothing or doing any of the outcomes that I described, it will start a process of new buying on uranium, which no matter what the outcome of Section 232, I see as creating price pressure on the price. It'll lead to a round of investment decisions by companies into uranium projects, but it will certainly lead to a round of consolidation. Because if you look at the paralysis moment, It would be a very brave board who goes out and acquires a uranium project in the US at the moment because you would have to pay a big premium because of the expectations for a quota or a tariff. And if Section 232 doesn't come off the way that they would like, well, uh, you've just overpaid for an asset that no longer has any sort of privileged access to the US market. And equally, a US producer would be very brave to start, or a US uranium company would be very brave to start an M&A process right now because they're hoping that they're just around the corner from a favorable outcome, which will significantly strengthen both their prospects and their balance sheet. So the unlocking of all of this is any decision on Section 232. And I think investors are really missing that. I think investors are sitting back saying, we better not invest because we don't know what's going to happen with the uranium price. I think the uranium price will go up regardless of what happens as that uncertainty lifts. Sure, sure. I agree with you. Now, uh, let's say that uranium prices reach $40 a pound by the end of this year. Uh, what do you see happening in the markets? Do you think that Chemical will start MacArthur River or are more projects going to be brought online, some in Kazakhstan or, or elsewhere? I see nothing happening in the uranium sector at $40 a pound. So if you run through them, the I think the biggest uh, concern that a lot of investors have got is what is the potential for mothballed or shuttered projects to come back online? So if you start with MacArthur River with Cameco, the world's largest uranium mine, which is on care and maintenance, uh, Cameco have been very careful not to 
broadcast the price that they would require, but I don't believe that they would bring it on at $40 a pound. They would first need to make sure that their long-term contract book is fully supportive of their other major assets, Cigar Lake, all the way out to 2027 when it's uh, when it runs out of reserves. And in the current contracting environment, they can't do that. So the first go-to, when Cameco does see the price that they like and they've got the ability to write term contracts, I think they will first want to contract Cigar Lake. And once they've really filled that contract book up, then they start talking about MacArthur River. And Cameco have made it clear that they won't bring MacArthur River back on until it's got the protection of contracts. So let's say in your scenario, December 31, uranium price hits $40. Even if that was the right price signal for Cameco, and I, I'd still believe it's below what they want to see, but even if it was, they'd then still have to start the long-term contracting process, which typically takes between two and six months. And then they'd have to start restarting the mine, which would take minimum six months. So even if that was the right price for them, they'd still be an entire year away from production. Um, you look at other uh, well-known shuttered mines like Langer Heinrich, for example. Well, they've said publicly that they wouldn't consider bringing Langer Heinrich on until they saw $45. But on top of that, they've now embarked on a optimization program, um, which on my estimates is going to take them another two years. So even if the price went to $100, they still wouldn't be back in production um, inside two years. And you can run through the list of all these shuttered mines and find something about them, every single one of them, that means that they wouldn't come come on at $40 a pound or within the time frame that you're talking about. Okay, not even in Kazakhstan? Well, the Kazakhs have now produced public guidance uh, through the London Stock Exchange saying that they will maintain the production guidance and the production discipline through 2018, uh, 2019 and 2020. So they're under now a regulatory regime that requires consistency with that forecasting, which I think would make it very difficult for them to start uh, filling in new production against their guidance. Uh, and then you question, well, why would they do that? If the uranium price is $40 by the end of the year, uh, there's no reason to think it won't be $60 by the end of the next year. And that's a situation that benefits Kazatomprom far more because every incremental dollar is uh, it goes straight to their bottom line. Sure, sure. And uh, now that uh, we mentioned chemical, what influence is uh, chemicals having in the uranium price at the moment? So as uh, listeners would be aware, Cameco is quite public about the fact that they are buying in the spot market and they're also buying off market through a process which is a request for proposal. So they send out a letter to people who they know have uranium and they say, we're looking for this many pounds, we're looking for a delivery in this time frame and here are the other restrictions that we've got. Please right back to us with your proposals. Um, so they're playing an important role at the moment, both signalling their desire and their intention to do that. And it's a substantial number of pounds that they still need to acquire this year. Uh, but they're also playing an important role through their request for proposals of testing the availability of mobile inventory. So what they're doing is two things. One is they're buying the material that they then need to deliver into their term contracts. Because uh, for your listeners who don't follow Cameco closely, when they put the MacArthur River into care and maintenance, uh, they didn't call a force majeure or on their delivery contract. They said, we'll still deliver all of that material. It's just that we'll buy it in the spot market rather than produce it from MacArthur River. So that's why there's an imperative for Cameco to be buying in the spot market and off market as well. But what they're also doing is they're obtaining invaluable market information about what level of mobile inventory there is 
through constantly testing and probing the market with their off-market requests for proposal. And I think at the moment, the role that they're playing is tightening all of that up. Uh, they have been buying quite aggressively, as we've seen in the last six weeks. That hasn't led to a increase in the uranium price. But what we do know is it's led to significant tightening of the amount of uranium that people are prepared to sell to them. And I see that as the perfect setup for the things that we talked about in terms of the breakout from $30 and so on. Sure. And uh, Brendan, I know you have done a lot of work on inventories and a very common criticism bears make about uranium is that the levels of inventories are unknown or there are very large stockpiles. Uh, but we know part of this inventory is not mobile, as you just mentioned. Part is strategic reserves, part is depleted tails. Can you help us better understand this issue? Yeah, I'd love to cast a bit of light on this because it is really one of the key myths about the uranium sector. Now, on the one hand, inventories are playing a very important role and they have played a big role in suppressing prices in uranium. And as we talked about earlier, suppressing prices to an economically unnatural and unfeasible and fundamentally unsustainable level. That's been largely the role of inventories. But the role of inventory has been very substantially exaggerated by people who don't understand how this sector works. And the classic example was a headline in the Wall Street Journal about 18 months ago that said along the lines of uranium price weighed down by five years of inventory. So an investor who doesn't understand our sector would look at that and go, oh my goodness, can you imagine if LME warehouses had five years of copper sitting in them, uh, the copper price wouldn't go anywhere for 20 years. Um, but that's not how it works in our sector, as you know. And inventory has always played a role in our sector. And the inventory levels back in 1990, when we had the fall of the Soviet Union, were higher than what they are today. And, and a large proportion of that inventory was commercial and mobile inventory that, that could be uh, put into nuclear power plants very quickly. So the inventory that doesn't concern me at all is, first of all, strategic inventory. Uh, and when I say strategic, I mean sovereign or government inventory. So this is inventory that's held by nations such as the US, Russia, China, for example. It's held by them for their strategic or defense purposes. Now, that doesn't mean it's, uh, it's in weaponry, but it does mean it's held for any eventuality over a longer period of time. And that's becoming under a little bit more focus with the news that we've seen relating to the unfortunate demise of certain treaties and so on. That doesn't concern me. That material is going nowhere. And China is building on its inventory constantly because it doesn't, I believe that China's well short of the levels of inventory that they need. India is another example who are quite publicly building their levels of sovereign inventory. Now, another number that gets put into these types of uh, summaries is what you just mentioned, depleted tails. So for the listeners who aren't nuclear physicists out there, basically what happens is natural uranium is converted and then put through an enrichment process, but not all of the uranium that you want uh, goes into the enriched product. Um, it's a little bit like a metallurgical process where you've got a tailings facility and a certain amount of the copper just doesn't get processed and ends up in the tailings facility. So that depleted material is very low-grade uranium in a sense. It has a very low proportion of the uranium-235 that you need for producing power. And it's very, very expensive to turn that material into uranium that can then go into the nuclear fuel cycle. So I think for groups who want to include that in this concept of inventory, 
they're missing the point. It's that is material that requires a very specific set of economic circumstances, which almost certainly means much higher prices before that would ever be put through the processing required to be as useful as the uranium that we can pull out of the ground at a tango in Namibia. Um, so the next category of inventory, which I think is relevant and is of concern, is what's typically called mobile inventory. So this is material that's held by traders. It might be excess material that's held by producers, so what they've mined but can't sell. It can be material that's held by investors. And this is inventory that's mobile in the sense that as a holder of that inventory, if I see $38, I'm ready to sell it. Now, what we have seen, so if I go back to, say, April last year, so UXC, who are a commentator in the sector, um, they estimated that between 17 and 35 million pounds of inventory, mobile inventory existed. And at the time, that produced a big sigh in the conference that I was at where they put that slide up. But that's an interesting number because now that's less than the deficit that's forecast for this year because of all the production cuts at MacArthur River and so on. And we're very much seeing that in the numbers. So Cameco have disclosed that a year ago, their inventory level was at 27 million pounds, producer inventory. They're now, they've used all of that and they're down to seven, which they regard as an essential level of inventory to provide confidence to their contracting partners. Um, we've seen it with Kazanaprom. So from their numbers that are now on the London Stock Exchange, we saw that they oversold by about £8 million. Pounds. So they've absorbed a lot of their producer inventory. Um, we're hearing it anecdotally from the request for proposals work that Cameco is doing. And we're also hearing it further down the nuclear fuel cycle in terms of the UF6 that's available. I understand that there's very little UF6 that can be bought for level money at the moment in the industry. So it's a really important dynamic, Marcello, because the visible health of the industry is the price. You look at the price, has it gone up, has it gone down? But that only tells a small part of the story because uh, as an investor, you want to be looking forward. You don't want to be thinking about what the price is today. You want to be thinking about what it is in several months' time or years' time. And the bigger indicator is how much mobile inventory is available because that determines the trajectory of volatility as prices start to move and as we start to see increased uh, buying and selling activity. Sure. Well, thanks for that, Brandon. And uh, what would be the biggest risk for investors in the uranium space right now? For equities investors, I think the biggest issue is that there's a relatively small number of companies that they can invest in. And many companies have got non-uranium price risks associated with them. The classic one in our industry is jurisdictional political risk. I'm very fortunate because Bannerman's project is in Namibia. And Namibia has been producing uranium for more than 40 years. Anyone who goes to Swakopmund where the uranium industry is, they'll immediately be impressed by how much social support there is for uranium mining and how much governmental support. And I certainly subscribe to the view that others have that Namibia is the single best jurisdiction for bringing a new uranium project into production in terms of infrastructure, regulation, social support, environmental support, political support, lack of green tape, etc., etc. Now, you can contrast that with Queensland, Australia, where there's some fabulous uranium deposits, but there's a ban. What can you do with that? You contrast that with WA, Western Australia, where there are some also some good uranium projects, uh, but there's a government in power here in this state that's hot uranium. So whilst there might be some licenses granted, none of those projects are producing today, and it's a bit hard to know what's going to happen tomorrow. You can contrast that to Canada, where environmental regulations, appropriately, are extremely strict because there's a recognition that a lot of the uranium is in a 
very sensitive environmental situation. So all of these jurisdictional um, risks can pose an additional layer of risk to a, to a company or an equity that means that they could lag or underperform changes in the uranium price. And it's not just jurisdiction, it's other things to do with the nature of the project. You've got metallurgy. Um, some of the better ISR projects, uh, investors who are used to hard metals like copper and gold, they look at an ISR project that's in situ recovery. They look at the grade, they think, wow, that's fantastic without understanding that the most important thing about an ISR project is not its grade, it's its permeability. Can the acid be sucked through the sandstone or whatever the other host is? So there's a range of non-uranium price risks that investors need to look really carefully at so that they don't end up backing the right race but the wrong horse. Okay. Now, Brandon, we've talked a lot and I have heard you in many podcasts and you have answered a range of questions. Is there any questions that people rarely ask you that you think is relevant? Well, I do get asked a lot of questions, as you say, and I must say the ones that you've been posing are some of the best that I've had in a while. So this has been fun. Well, thanks. <laughs> I get asked a lot of questions about price and we've talked about that. I get asked a lot of questions about individual deposits and I'm respectfully, I don't talk about that. Um, but I can always recommend consultants and so on who can go and do the work on individual individual deposits, but uh, I'm happy to talk about our Atango project in Namibia, but I'll leave other companies to talk about theirs. And uh, what I don't get asked very often, curiously, is about where the nuclear industry sits in terms of public debate and public sentiment and so on after Fukushima. And I say curiously because, as you know well in Sydney, you know, we live in a country that's still quite fervently anti-nuclear. Australia would rather pollute the world with its coal than it would adopt what we absolutely know to be a safe, clean, reliable baseload solution in the form of nuclear power. But there's a lot of deep running political and social reasons for that. What we are seeing though, and if I was asked that question more often, I'd love to give the answer, which is the future of the nuclear industry relies on two things. The one is the ability of nuclear power to concertina or dovetail with renewable energy. And I'm a big believer in that. I'm also involved, in, I've worked in the renewable sector before, um, I invest in the renewable sector at the moment, I'm a supporter of renewables energy. But the more intermittent renewables that we have in the form of wind and solar, the more baseload that we need to complement and enable the unreliability and unpredictability of that intermittent power source. So I see renewables as a very key enabler of nuclear power, particularly where we're seeing a lot more pressure being put on the, the grid infrastructure from things like electric vehicles and the electrification of transport. The other key driver for nuclear power is displacement of coal, particularly in China and India. And sometimes I get people saying, you know, why do you really think China's going to grow its nuclear fleet so quickly? Look how much solar they're building and look how much wind they're building. And sure, they're building very impressive amounts of solar and wind. Uh, there's one question about how long they can keep that trajectory up, particularly given how much farmland is being consumed by solar at a time when you've got a planet that's rapidly running out of food production. But that's not the point. The point is how much of China's coal production that currently accounts for about 70% of their power do they need to displace? because their renewable energy is simply meeting increasing demand. In fact, it's not even going that far. It's contributing to meeting increasing demand. But at the same time, they've got to decrease the amount of coal that they produce for very fundamental air pollution and societal stability reasons. Exactly the same dynamic happening in India and the same dynamic happening in a different way in many different countries. So that's the untalked about environmental aspect of nuclear power that is just starting to get some momentum. And the World Nuclear Association is really doing a great job with the work that they're doing 
in terms of getting nuclear power's green, clean, safe credentials onto the policy agendas of the most important organizations in the world that think about these things. Brilliant. Brandon, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, my pleasure and congratulations on the great progress that you're making with L2. It, uh, it's great to know that the folks down in Brazil are backing nuclear power and uranium as well. For sure. Thanks, Brandon. Okay, cheers. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast. Thank you.